I believe in Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, the prelude to Adam, the author of Eden, by all, in all, through all Genesis reason, the husband of a newborn bride. I believe earth is his love's ultimate beacon. I believe in Jesus, the infant king, ruler of the heavens, the universe's spring, yet he took the frailest of forms, the weakest of things, for our mighty God was not too proud for the stable and trough of Bethlehem's sting. I believe in Jesus, the forgiver of men. Since man could not come to God, God came to them. Though we spit in his face through our arrogance and sin, holiness became flesh and said it was forgiven. I believe in Jesus, the perfection of the law, for creation was doomed by the requirements it scrawled. But he came not to abolish correction, but fulfill us where we fall and wrote a new law on our hearts love God and love all I believe in Jesus the Lord without a throne he dumbfounded the masses by not making the crown his own lost scores of followers by letting weakness be shown and traded the palace for not having a home I believe in Jesus the tenant of the poor he saw a beloved sister where the world saw whore he ate with those who weren't allowed through the temple's doors and taught us to live with less so those with none could have some more I believe in Jesus the horribly betrayed unknown by the world he himself had made handed over to death by a follower to whom silver was paid disowned by a friend three times in one day I believe in Jesus the ever turning cheek no sword in his hand he took the way of the weak redefined strength as beaten and meek when men struck him on his back only forgiveness did he speak I believe in Jesus the servant on the cross to save the lives of the sinful he considered his own life lost endured the torture of men whips and nails in his flesh were embossed received the wrath of God father punishing son the ultimate cost I believe in Jesus and that flesh in the tomb he bore the end of a normal human as he was born of a human's womb he died a criminal's death and was buried in another man's room God the son lay dead the lifeless groom but I still believe in Jesus and the body of his resurrection for he redefined life in death's final rejection showed holes in hands to over 500 of his own selection so that humanity would not be able to raise an objection that Jesus Christ is God the son and has made the ultimate connection so I believe in Jesus and the responsibility of his ascension. He ascended to God's right hand forever in intercession, leaving his truth in the hands of a few, the first to be called his Christians. His hands and feet are now the church, his timeless narrative expression. This is our heritage. They are our relatives, and this is our confession. We believe in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. 
No matter the tears of the world's hate and aggression, no matter the wares of holiness's painful progression, no matter the shares of suffering in our possession, no matter the layers of our apathy and transgression, we will carry the weight of faith's succession, for the world and its cares are nothing compared to this glorious injection, this everlasting song, this endless profession, that we are Christ Christians and we live our radiant confession. I believe in Jesus Christ, the rallying cry of our eternal obsession. Pretty cool, eh? That has been, a note has been sitting on my notice board for the last six months, saving that multimedia for this message, because I just thought it was awesome. I believe in Jesus. But what does that mean? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What are we confessing when we say a statement like that? And what are we saying that we are trusting in if that is the case? We are in this series that we are calling Reformation, where we are celebrating 500 years since the, what many consider to be the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, when a monk named Martin Luther in Germany nailed some statements up on the, the door of his local church. And those 95 statements in that act on the 31st of October, 1517, launched really the beginning of Protestant churches. And if you have grown up or been part of any churches outside of the Catholic and Orthodox churches, really, Anglican and Baptist and Presbyterian and Salvation Army and Pentecostal and so on, then you are part of this movement that launched 500 years ago. And so we've been taking a few weeks uh, as we head into Christmas to look again at what it means to be Protestant and, more importantly, what the gospel is that got rediscovered 500 years ago by these, these important people at this key moment of church history. So two weeks ago, we launched this series right around that 500th anniversary by looking again at this, just the story of Martin Luther, that German monk. And then the next five weeks, what we are doing is going through the five key moments or the five key theological rocks that the uh, Protestant Reformation was built on. So last week, we looked at the first one, Sola Scriptura, which is Latin for the Scriptures alone because that was the foundation of everything that they, the reformers came to believe and argue for. Today, then, we are coming to the second one on this list, Sola Christos, Christ alone, because that's really the centerpiece of the Reformation and the centerpiece, really, of Christian theology. Uh, Modern-day uh, theologian J.I. Packer wrote this, Christology is the true hub around which the wheel of theology revolves in which all of its separate spokes must each be correctly anchored if the wheel is not to get bent. In other words, to have a correct understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what it means to say, I believe in Jesus, is at the heart of the Christian faith. And so today, that's what we want to look at. Sola Christus, Christ alone. And to do that, I want to anchor us today in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Whether you've got a written Bible, an app on your phone, an iPad, whatever works for you. Hebrews is an anonymous letter. We don't know who the author is, but it was written to Jewish Christians who'd come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, but under persecution were tempted to begin to move away from that. And so... 
uh, this letter was written to invite them back to, to not leave, to not to walk away, but to stay firmly rooted to Jesus. And the whole theme of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus. The rallying cry of this letter very much is, I believe in Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to anchor us in these verses in, in Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, but then I'm going to traverse the book of Hebrews from that and pull in references from elsewhere in the letter to help us form a picture of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So let me read this passage, and then I want to begin to pull out of it. So Hebrews 2, if you've got it in front of you there, follow along, verse 14. Since the children, which is uh, humanity, you and I, those who have trusted in uh, Jesus and become his children by adoption, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might uh, break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and that he might free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." What I want to do today is I want to draw out five key truths about the person and work of Jesus out of this passage. We're not going to walk through it uh, logically following the order of the passage as much as I want to work through the life of Jesus chronologically and draw the principles out from these verses and then show how the rest of Hebrews kind of builds an understanding because these five truths about Jesus is what J.I. Packer was calling Christology, the study of the person of Jesus. And there's five core truths that we need to understand and recognize and embrace. The first one is that Jesus came. Jesus came. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. This is essentially what Christmas is all about in just a few weeks' time. Sorry to mention that again, but it's just a few weeks away. But at Christmas, we are celebrating the incarnation that, that Jesus, who was God, became a human being. And that's what verses 14 and 17 are referencing. So twice in this passage. Verse 14, since the children of flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Verse 17 is even stronger. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Now, what we need to understand is that Hebrews has begun, the very beginning of the letter, makes a strong claim about the eternality and the deity of Jesus. So the letter to Hebrews starts this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. This is a Jewish pastor writing to Jewish believers in Jesus, and he's going back to the Old Testament and saying, remember, in the Old Testament, God spoke through to our ancestors in different ways, through prophets and through the sacrificial system and so on. But in these last days, he says, he has spoken to us by his son. So what he's saying there is that Jesus has now come in the line of all of the Old Testament, but he is the climactic revelation of God. They, he, God has revealed himself through these other ways and through the prophets, but now he has spoken through the son. And the son is the heir of all things, that means he is the rightful king, through whom he made the universe, he is also our creator who existed at the beginning of time. And then it goes on in verse 3 to say this, the son is the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That is a statement about the deity of Jesus, that he is the eternal God who created this world, who is the rightful king, and who is the exact representation of the Father. It is powerful language. And we're to read verses 14 and 17 of Hebrews 2 in light of this introduction. Jesus is God, the exact representation of his being, who at a certain point in time that we celebrate at Christmas stepped into our world and became one of us. He was made, verse 17, like them, fully human in every way. So Jesus is 100% totally fully God, and then at the incarnation, he became, in addition to that, fully human. And a mystery that we can't comprehend and get our, our heads around, but that is the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, John's gospel explains it beautifully as well. I love these words. John begins his story of Jesus in the beginning, which from Genesis 1 is back at the very start of the whole story. In the beginning was the Word, which is image, is his image for Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. He became human, and he made his dwelling among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory, the one and only of the Father. That's the first core truth to be embraced about Jesus, that he is fully God, and he became fully man at the incarnation, and he came. Secondly, Jesus obeyed. Jesus obeyed. Have a look at verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. It's a reference to the fact that because Jesus was fully human, he experienced everything that we've experienced. And what is implicit in verse in chapter 2 is then made explicit a couple of chapters later in Hebrews 4. It says, we don't have a high priest, uh, which I'll explain in a, a little bit later on, but this is Jesus who was unable to feel sympathy with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. This is a huge statement. Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. If you've ever been tempted in anger just to shoot your mouth off, Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. He was tempted to do that too. If you've been, ever been tempted to get really ticked off at someone who's incredibly annoying, Jesus knows exactly what that is, feels like. If you've been, ever, ever been tempted to sin sexually or to lust after someone in your heart, Jesus knows what that's like. He got tempted to lust. If you've ever struggled with pride in your heart, oops, sorry, that was me. Jesus knows exactly what that's like. He was tempted to be proud. He has been tempted in every way just as we have. He was tempted to be materialistic and accumulate stuff for himself. He was tempted to twist the truth and to lie occasionally. He's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. And what's underlying here is that he is fully human. He's experienced everything we have, but the crucial difference is that he never gave in to that temptation. Jesus lived the perfect life, which is crucial because that means he has got perfect, perfect righteousness to pass on to us, which is something we'll look at over the next couple of weeks as we look at grace and faith. Uh, the book of Hebrews goes on and talks about him this way in Hebrews 7. Such a high priest 
truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. It's an emphatic statement about the perfection and righteousness of Jesus. Jesus fully obeyed everything the Father had said to him. And then again, it goes back into the Old Testament and says, unlike the other high priests of of Israel's history, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That's what they had to do in the Old Testament. The high priest would come and kill a lamb or a bull or something for his own sin and offer that sacrifice to God and then he would sacrifice on behalf of the nation. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus doesn't have to do that. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. He had no need to sacrifice for his own sins because he hadn't committed any. And he he not only came, but he lived and he obeyed and he lived a perfect life, which becomes crucial for our salvation. Third key truth that we have to uh, embrace if we're to understand what Jesus has done for us is that he died. And the emphasis here in Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament is that he died in our place. He died as our substitute. So verse 17 says, He had to be made like them, or like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and in order that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Atonement was an idea from the Old Testament where where a sacrifice was made and offered as a substitute for the sins of the people. And this animal was killed, and the sins of the people were laid on that animal so that God would not judge uh, the people for their own sin and rebellion against them. And it was a pointer to the cross one day when Jesus would come that ultimately Jesus would die as our substitute. He would die in our place. And that is at the heart of, of the good news, the gospel about Jesus. Um, that passage we just looked at earlier uh, in Hebrews 7, I kind of skipped past this last line, but don't miss this. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Just notice the exactness which, with which this, um, this pastor writing this makes this clear. He sacrificed himself. Jesus does not come like they did in the Old Testament and bring an animal that is going to take the place of sinners. Jesus brought himself. And he sacrificed himself in our place. He took our place for our sins. He was our substitute. And notice, and this will come up again and again in Hebrews, he did it once for all. He took care of the sin problem once and for all, which is why on the cross, when he was about to give up his spirit, Jesus says, it is finished. It's done. Because he's paid for our sins once and for all. Uh, Later on again in chapter 10, the writer does the same thing. When this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. In other words, he sat down because it was finished, it was complete. For by one sacrifice, the writer says, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I love the way Peter describes it in a couple of lines in his letter in the New Testament as well. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. Sometimes it's easy to look at the cross and think about what we celebrate at Easter and the fact that Jesus died for us and think it was the physical suffering and and so on and then the physical death that paid for our sins. And in one measure it was, but 
what was happening in the moment as he hung on that cross for those six hours is that the wrath of God was being poured on him as he took the punishment for our sins as our substitute. Made clear in, in 1 Peter 3, 2, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous to bring us to God. So to have a proper Christology and understanding of Jesus means that Jesus came and he obeyed and lived a perfect life and he died as our substitute. And then fourthly, it is that Jesus rose. Jesus rose. And this is his victory over death on our behalf. And that's being alluded to in verses 14 and 15 at the beginning of our passage here. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery to their fear of death. The death of Jesus alone was not sufficient. Jesus needed to have risen again to prove that his death was sufficient and prove that he had, in fact, shattered the powers of hell and defeated Satan and defeated death once and for all. That's why the resurrection of Jesus is so critical to the story. He's alive. He isn't lying in a grave somewhere in the land of Israel. He wasn't just thrown, discarded into a common grave and his bones rotted away. He died for our sins, but he rose again. So again, the writer in a few chapters' time will say, there have been many of those priests in the Old Testament because death prevented them from continuing in office. In other words, they all kept dying. And so the priesthood was passed down from father to son and father to son. But then he says, but Jesus is different. Because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. He permanently holds the office as our priest before God because he lives forever. I love the way that Paul underlines the centrality of the death and resurrection at the heart of this message of good news that the reformers recovered. Writing to the church in Corinth in Greece, he said, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, this good news on which you've taken your stand. What I received, I passed on to you is of first importance. This is the heart of the story. Christ died for our sins as our substitute, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, which means he was really dead, and he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's the heart of the good news, according to Paul. And it's the heart of the good news, according to the writer to the Hebrews. This is a proper understanding of the person and work of Jesus. Jesus came at the incarnation. Jesus obeyed and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. Jesus died as a substitute for our sins. Jesus rose bodily, physically from the dead to conquer death. And then finally, and this is important, Jesus prays. Jesus prays. And this one, by the way, the others are all in past tense, the verbs. This verb's present tense, because this is what Jesus is continuing to do today for those of us who have put our faith in him. He prays. He is standing with the Father, and he intercedes and prays for us to God. So what verse 17 is talking about when it calls Jesus a merciful and faithful high priest. So in the Old Testament, the high priest had, had two jobs, really. One job was to offer sacrifices for sins, uh, for, for, uh, for, to bring sinful people back into harmony and, and relationship with a holy God. And so they sacrificed sin, and that's what uh, the author's already talked about, that Jesus did in offering his own body himself 
as our substitute. But the other part of the role of the high priest was to pray to God and bring um, the prayers of the people to God, pray for the people to God and act as a kind of a mediator. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is that's what Jesus does for us even now. So he'll say this explicitly a little bit later on. I just quoted before Hebrews 7.24, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. The writer then went on to say this in the next verse, therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So at this very moment in time, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus is interceding on your behalf to the Father. That means when you blow it and just sin and give in to the temptations that he was able to resist, Jesus is reminding his Father that he has paid for all of your sin. When you are struggling through some crisis and difficulty in life, Jesus is bringing that to the Father and asking the Father to sustain and to strengthen and to help. He is the one who prays on our behalf before the Father. And that is why the writer says this in Hebrews 4. I've already quoted verse 15. We, we don't have a high priest who's unable to feel sympathy with our weaknesses. That's a double negative, by the way. So if you turn into positive language, he says, we have a high priest who feels sympathy with us. We have one who has been tempted in every way just like we are, except he didn't sin. Therefore, let's approach God's throne with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Because Jesus is there praying for us and interceding for us and being our representative, we can boldly come to God whenever we're in need. Whether that need is caused by what's going on in the circumstances in our lives, whether that's caused by our own stupidity and failure and rebellion and sin, we can come with confidence because Jesus is standing right there with the Father as our advocate and our intercessor. This is a biblical Christology. This is what J.I. Packer is saying is the hub of the Christian faith, understanding the person and work of Jesus. Jesus came, became one of us. God became man. Jesus obeyed and lived the perfect life we can't live. Jesus died as our substitute and took our sin on himself. Jesus rose and conquered death because he physically rose again and lives forever. And Jesus now prays at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. That is the person and work of Jesus. And because of that, Hebrews and other passages of the Bible will use a very important word to describe how Jesus relates to us. Oh, I'll come to that in a minute. So, sola Christus. What this doctrine then means is the reformers took these, these key truths about the identity of Jesus and said, therefore, sola Christus, Christ alone, means two things. Number one, it means we confess the exclusive identity of Jesus. This is who Jesus uniquely is. There's no one else like him. He is the one who is fully God and who became fully man. That's the, the incarnation. That means Jesus is unique in his identity. Now, the reformers 
agreed completely with the Catholic Church on this. This was not the issue of dispute. The Catholic Church then and today has a very solid view of the identity of Jesus. So their catechism, which I quoted from last week, this is the 1995 Catechism of the Catholic Church, says the unique and altogether singular event of the incarnation of the Son of God doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is part God and part man, and it doesn't imply that he's the result of some confused mixture of divine and human. He became truly man while remaining truly God. So they're using the word truly where I use the word fully, but it's exactly the same thing. We're saying the same thing. The church thus confesses that Jesus is inseparably true God and true man. So the reformers and the Catholic church were in agreement on the identity of Jesus. Where the dispute came was the second part of the confession sola Christos. It came around the work of Jesus, what Jesus did. And the Catholic Church did not dispute any of the other points that Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament raises. The Catholic Church agrees that Jesus not only came as the unique God-man, but they agree that Jesus lived the perfect life in obedience to the Father, that he died as our substitute and took our sins on the cross, that he rose again bodily, physically from the dead, and he now intercedes for us. They agree with all of those five points. The issue the Catholic Church had and the issue that the reformers broke away from over was the word sufficient. That the work that Jesus accomplished was sufficient. Now, if you were here last week when we were talking about the Scriptures, that's the same word that was at the heart of that dispute as well. Last week, we pulled out four key truths from 2 Timothy 3 about the Bible. And I said that the Catholic Church fully agreed with three out of those four statements about the Bible. The one thing they didn't like that the the Reformers said was, that the Bible was sufficient, was the only revelation from God that we needed. Because the Catholic Church adds on the tradition and teachings of the church and adds on the pope and bishops of the church and those offices. And, And the Protestant reformers turned around and said, look, we believe in the church and believe in the leadership of the church. Not sure about how you've set up the pope. Um, And we believe in the teachings and traditions of the ancient church. But at the end of the day, it's scripture alone. And the dispute comes over not what Jesus did or who he is, but whether that's sufficient. So at the end of the day, you go through those five solas that we're going to walk through in these five weeks. The Catholic Church believes in the Scriptures and Jesus and grace and faith and God's glory. They just don't believe in them alone. And the Reformers come and say, no, sola Christus, Christ alone, means we believe in the exclusive identity of Jesus, that's who he is, and we believe his work for us is sufficient, what he's done. And the dispute came over whether or not what Jesus has done is enough for us or whether we need to add on to that or not. And this is where we come to this very important biblical word, mediator. Jesus, the reformer said, is the sole mediator between God and humanity. Jesus is the only bridge between a holy God and a sinful humanity. 
This is taught a few different times in the New Testament. One of those places is the book of Hebrews. So further along in his argument in Hebrews 9, the writer says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant for those who've been called who may receive the promised eternal adherence now that he has died as a ransom. Same idea comes through in the letter of 1 Timothy that the apostle Paul wrote, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator, you may be familiar with the concept because we still have it today, a mediator is someone who gets in between two parties who have had a disagreement or can't, can't agree on something and a mediator brings them together. So often you see this, for example, in employment situations. In fact, many of our employment contracts have the idea written into that. If, if things, we have a dispute with our employer and things fall apart, often it's written into an employment contract that this may have to go to mediation if we can't agree. And the idea of that is that a mediator will sit in between two parties who don't agree and help them come together again. That's what the Bible is saying about Jesus. Jesus has brought a holy God and sinful people, and uniquely and alone, he brings them together. Not through negotiation, but through his death. And both Hebrews and Timothy, in talking about Jesus as our mediator, mention that he gave himself as a ransom for our sins. So he brings us together, he mediates, he reconciles a holy God and a sinful people through his death on the cross. That's how he brings us together. And because of that, the scriptures announce he is the sole mediator, the one and only bridge we need between God and us who are broken and sinful. And the issue becomes whether or not we need anything else. Because the Catholic Church then and now would agree with most of what I've said about the person and work of Jesus. But what they then say is, but in order for the benefits of what Jesus has done to come to you and I, they have to be mediated through the church. They have to come through particular means in order for you to benefit from that. And the reformers turned around and said, no, they don't. They come by you trusting in Jesus alone. What that means then today is this. I want to bring out four key ideas about how this impacts the way that you can have a relationship with God today. If you have trusted in Jesus, if it's sola Christos, by Christ alone, this means if you've trusted in Jesus, you do not need a priest's forgiveness. See, under the Catholic system, you have to come and confess your sins to the priest. And you have to actually name those sins in order to receive forgiveness for those sins. So the catechism reads like this. I've been reading the catechism online. It says, confession to a priest is an essential part of the sacrament of penance. All mortal sins of which penitents, after a diligent self-examination are conscious, must be recounted by them in confession. So the idea is that you have to think through all of the ways you've stuffed up, not only all of the words you've said and the things you've done, but also the stuff you've thought and the things you haven't done, 
when you had opportunity, and you have to confess all of those things to the priest in order to be forgiven. And if you don't confess those, having remembered them, you will not be forgiven. That is why when I was telling Martin Luther's story, Martin Luther lived with tremendous angst before a holy God. That's why he'd spend up to six hours a day in the confessional trying to think of every single thing he'd done wrong because he had to confess that to, uh, to, to the priest, to his confessor. And it was always got to be done to, to your local priest. So if this was a Catholic church and I was the priest, you'd all have to come and tell me your sins. I wouldn't be your priest. <laughs> I'd resign. The reformers turned around and said, you don't have to confess to the priest because you can go straight to your priest. Your priest is Jesus. I'm not your priest. I'm your pastor, and there's a very big difference. Your priest is in heaven, alive today, at the right hand of the Father, and you go straight to him. That's why John would write, if we claim to be without sin, then we're kidding. But if we confess our sins, he, and it's Jesus in the context, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because we have an advocate. Jesus is standing with the Father as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We just come to him. You don't come to the priest down the road. You go to the priest at the right hand of God. So if you have trusted in Jesus, you don't need to go to find forgiveness from a priest. Secondly, if you've trusted in Jesus, you don't seek merit from the sacraments. What happens in the Catholic system is that all the wonderful things that Jesus has done, and they agree on everything that he's done, that is mediated through the church. So you need to be, uh, have your babies baptized, and then you need to go to confession, and you need to do penance, and you need to take the mass, and you need to have last rites, and you need to take vows, because grace is mediated through the, what are called the sacraments. And the reformers came along, because Catholic Church has seven sacraments, and the reformers went, you know what? The Bible says we do two things. We're baptized, and we take communion. But neither of those two things give God's merit. You don't earn brownie points every time you take communion. And you don't earn brownie points when you're baptized. That is why many Protestant churches have become Baptistic like we are. We don't baptize little babies. We baptize people like Eva and Dulcia tonight who have already put their faith and trust in Jesus. So they've already got the merits of Jesus. Eva is not earning any brownie points tonight. I mean, we'll give her a book from the church, but <laughs> and her parents might, I don't know, take her out for dinner or something. But there's no merit with God because baptism and communion for Protestants are symbols of what has already been won from Jesus. So tonight, Eva is just showing publicly her faith in Christ alone. There's no merit to be found in these things. They're celebrating what we get from Jesus by faith. Thirdly, if you've trusted in Jesus, this means you do not have to ask for Mary to intercede for you. Massive difference between Catholicism and Protestantism. Many of you, even if you have never been raised or stepped foot in a Catholic church, will be familiar with the Hail Mary. 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And to be clear, Catholics are not praying to Mary for salvation. It's a common myth, and it actually is not correct. They look to Jesus for their salvation. They are coming to Mary to ask Mary to pray for them. Similar idea to a prayer. This is the prayer that Martin Luther would have prayed as an Augustinian monk. Save, O Queen, thou mother of mercy, our life, our delight, and our hope. To thee we exiled sons of Eve, lift up our cry. To thee we sigh as we languish in this veil of tears, this broken world we live in. Be thou our advocate. Sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, thou Holy Mother of God. The prayers to Mary that are offered by the Catholic Church are, are, are prayers for Mary to be their advocate, for Mary to come to Jesus. Now, you won't find this doctrine in the Bible. This is part of the tradition of the Catholic Church. But I've never understood where it comes from until researching this in the last few weeks. Where it comes from is actually the centuries before Luther and the Reformation. What happened over the centuries before Luther came along is that increasingly the church focused on Jesus not so much as Savior, although they believed that, but they focused more and more on Jesus as the coming judge. So the doctrine they focused on was that Jesus is coming one day and he is going to judge everyone for their sins and every person who has ever lived is going to stand before Jesus when he returns. Revelation 19 has this vision of Jesus as the all-conquering ruler riding a white horse, massive tattoo on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords, sword in hand, and he is going to judge every person who has ever lived. And the righteous will be ushered into heaven, and the sinful will be thrown into hell. Now that is biblical imagery, and that's truth. Jesus is going to be the one who exercises judgment at the end of time. That's true. But what happened in these centuries before the Reformation is increasingly that became their sole view of Jesus. So by the time Martin Luther becomes a monk, he is scared stiff of Jesus. In fact, we're told, and I don't know if it's still there or not, but we're told, but above the door on the inside of the chapel in the monastery where he served as a monk was a carving of Jesus the judge with bulging eyes and a massive frown and a sword in his hand and an angry look on his face. And whenever they left chapel, they left seeing this image of Jesus who is angry with them and is about to judge them. That was the image of Jesus. So then, what happened over the centuries is, how do you come and pray to Jesus if you're scared stiff of Jesus? And so this theology developed. If you're scared to come to Jesus, why don't you talk to his mum? <laughs> hey? Seriously. Who's going who's gonna to argue with his mum? You know, if you come to mum and say, Mary, would you please put in a good word with Jesus for me about this? Well, that's a great way to do it. And the biblical justification for that was found in John 2 in the story of the wedding at Cana where the family that's putting on the wedding feast, they run out of wine, and they simply come to Mary and say, we've run out of wine. And Mary goes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. And Jesus turns water into wine. 
And so the theologians pointed to that story and said, see, all you have to do is come to Mary. And Mary will put in a good word for you. There's a big problem with that. Number one, it's elevating Mary to a massive degree. But the, the, the thing to understand is this did not start out as a worship of Mary. It started out with a distorted view of Jesus so that Mary needed to become your advocate. And the reformers came along and said, you don't need Mary. Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is your shepherd. Jesus is the one at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. You have a high priest who is understanding and feels sympathy for your weakness. Jesus is not angry and vengeful when you give in to sin. He is grieved deeply when we sin. But he understands and he is with the Father interceding for you and inviting you to come to the throne of grace again and again and again. Luther wrote these words. He who grasps this in faith cannot think that God is angry with him or will reject and condemn him. For here there is neither a word or sign of disfavor, but only friendly, gracious words, a loving and kind look, in short, ineffable, fatherly, and sincere love. Now understand, Luther is describing the joy of coming to Jesus when he is your Savior and Lord. If you aren't in a relationship with Jesus, then the image of Jesus as the judge at the end of time stands very true for you. But the, the good news is that you can come to Jesus and trust in him and find that the anger of God has been fully absorbed at the cross. But that means you don't need Mary anymore either. So if you've trusted in Jesus, you don't need a priest's forgiveness. You don't need merit from the sacraments. You don't have to ask for Mary's intercession. And then finally, you don't trust in your own righteousness. By trusting in Jesus, you are implicitly or deliberately not trusting in yourself. That means there's no merit in what you do. That means you don't get to come to God with all the stuff you have accomplished, all the effort you have put in, all the good works you have done, and expect that somehow he'll love you more for that. Coming to Jesus, and this is part of the real difficulty for many people, Coming to Jesus and trusting in Jesus is an acknowledgement that you can't do it. It's an acknowledgement that you are weak, that you are a failure before God, and there's no merit in you. About six months after nailing the theses to the wall, when Luther was still figuring out and putting into words this theology he'd come to believe the, the leader of his Augustinian movement was writing to him saying, what on earth are you doing? And this is what he wrote back to Johann von Stalpitz. Johann, what I'm teaching is that people should put their trust in nothing but Jesus Christ alone. Not in their prayers, not in their merits, not in their own good deeds. That's solar crystals. Jesus Christ alone.
Paul, uh, Luther is simply standing on the words of Paul and others in the New Testament. This is what Paul wrote to a church at a place called Philippi. He recounts all of the wonderful things that he used to do under the old system of the law. And then he says, but now I consider all of that garbage that I may gain Christ and will be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that I've earned from, from trying to obey the law, but having a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. A righteousness that he gives me that comes from God on the basis of faith. I'm going to talk more about how exactly that works in the next couple of weeks. But the simple point of this is what the reformers recovered was that Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith. And he is the one and only mediator between God and humanity. God's grace comes to us through Jesus. Doesn't come through the pastor, doesn't come through the church, doesn't come through communion or baptism, doesn't come through our own good deeds. It is simply and solely through Jesus. He is the one who brings you and me to God. Sola Christos, Christ and Christ alone. Last week I was away on a retreat uh, for a few days with other senior pastors from the network we're part of. And the year before we'd been on the same retreat at the same time of year and I was telling a few of the guys around dinner one night sitting together, five or six of us, that this time next year, which is now 15, seven, uh, 19, 2017, um, that this was going to be the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and I was thinking about putting a series together on the Reformation and three or four of them sitting around the table were like, oh, that is an awesome idea. And so there's been a few emails kind of flying around and some ideas. So there's a few Livingstones churches around New Zealand that have all done Reformation series um, this year. One of them is a church down in Nelson called Grace Church uh, in Richmond, uh, near Nelson. The pastor there's a guy by the name of Peter Somerville. Some of you will know him. He used to be the pastor of Howard Baptist Church. And he's now pastoring down in Nelson, and he's part of the same network. And um, they've finished their Reformation series. They, they did it so that the last sermon coincided with the anniversary of the Reformation, which is when we started ours, which is really helpful because it means I can go listen to his sermons, <laughs> um, which is nice. <clears throat> but uh, Peter writes a blog. And I was on Facebook earlier this week, and I noticed that uh, he puts a link on his Facebook page to the blog he's written. And the blog he wrote this week uh, was Sola Christos. He'd written a blog based on the sermon he'd preached a couple of weeks ago. And so I read his blog, and he did an outstanding job of capturing in just a few words the beauty of this doctrine. So to finish, I want to quote some words from the eminent New Zealand theologian, uh, Peter Summerville, because I think he nails it on the head. The mistake the Roman Catholic Church made was not that they didn't believe that Jesus could save. They did, and they still do. It's just that he wasn't enough. You needed something more. You needed Jesus plus the sacraments, or Jesus plus the rosary, or Jesus plus prayers to the saints, and on and on it went. And he goes on in his blog, and then he comes to his conclusion, which is this. You don't need another saviour. You don't need another mediator. 
You don't need another redeemer or rescuer. If you have Jesus, you have all that you need. That's the message of the Reformation. Jesus is the one and only mediator between a holy God and sinful people. And that means if you have Jesus, you've got everything you need. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you've never come into a relationship with him, it is as simple as acknowledging in your heart that you have sinned and you can't make it and choosing to trust in him as the one who died for your sins, lived the life you couldn't live, and has risen again by simply putting your faith in him. You have your sins forgiven and adopted as his child. If you have trusted in Jesus, you don't need anything else. You are fully loved, fully accepted, completely forgiven, not because you've done anything, but because he's done it. He's the sole mediator. So if you've got Jesus, you've got everything you need. Jesus, we bow before you today, and we thank you that you and you alone are the one who brings us to a holy God. Because you came You obeyed, you died, you rose, and now you pray and intercede for us. You are everything we need. You are our great high priest. Forgive us for looking to other things and other people. Forgive us for looking at our own goodness or hard work or effort to feel like we make it with you. Help us to trust in you alone. Help us to realize we need nothing else. Help us to live every day in the light of this beautiful doctrine. Sola Christos. Jesus, we say today that we trust in you alone. Amen. Can we stand together?